Hi, everyone. Uh, so we're changing things up here on the podcast. Uh, first things first, we are actually no longer long story short. Uh, we're now simply the Circuit Research Podcast. And then secondly, I've historically hosted this show and interviewed guests for each episode, but I'm excited to announce that I'm bringing on a permanent co-host, Victoria Gamlin. Uh, she's a brand strategist and our somewhat new head of marketing. Um, so welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Back. Excited to be back, yeah. I should say. <laughs> <laughs> to your new home. Um, yes. So, you know, the truth is we've had, you and I have had hundreds of hours of great conversations together. And when it came down to it, it was really an obvious choice to invite you on to be a permanent co-host. So I'm really glad to have you aboard. Yeah. No, I'm excited. This This will be good. Yeah. So I made a joke in our first podcast together, which actually wasn't a joke at all, like most of my jokes. Um, and that was that someone should interview you, Jeff. Um, I've had the privilege of working with you on your positioning, your rebrand, uh, but also writing your case studies uh, for Circuit Research. Um, so that was definitely a major catalyst to turning that joke into a reality. Um, and I kind of feel like no one really knows what you do. Um, and it's really, really cool. So I wanted to change that. Uh, and then, of course, I thought this would be a perfect first episode with me as co-host and to give you a little taste of your own medicine. Um, it's your turn in the hot seat. All right, let's dive in. First off, what is Circan Research? Hit us with the elevator pitch. Perfect. Um, so we're a research firm for B2B companies. We do quantitative research and analysis that lets our clients create content across the entire customer journey, develop positioning and targeted messaging, and learn what matters most to their ideal customers. Great. A little stiff. We'll work on it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. All right. So we'll get into what you mean by that um, in a bit. But um, first, one of the things that struck me about you uh, was that you have shockingly good social skills. Uh, <laughs> you're literally one of the funniest people I've ever met, which I was not expecting um, whatsoever when you DM'd me to invite me on your podcast a couple months ago. Um, but you're also a huge data nerd. Like You could absolutely get away with being incredibly socially awkward based on what your brain is able to process and at what speed it is, uh, but you're not. Um, so I'm curious, when did you know you were really good at Excel? A <laughs> um, lot to unpack there, but first thing, um, <laughs> the truth is, I, I, to be clear, I, I think I would say the same about you, and I don't think I really thought about wow. that until literally we're having this conversation now, but yeah, I, I totally agree. That's very nice. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's funny. There really, there really was a specific moment that for me was a turning point, and it was a senior in college, and I read the book Freakonomics. It had just come out. I was actually okay. literally reading it in class, uh, and, and I ran home to read it, and I literally in twenty four hours I read the entire book. But I was always a really curious kid. I was especially with sports. I needed to know why something was happening. And when they went into their chapter on uh, regression analysis, it was the whole idea that there was statistical modeling that you could use to actually help you understand in a real life scenario, what actually impacted the outcome. Um, and for me, that was just a light bulb moment, helped me realize that there was actually a field of work called analytics, where fundamentally you do word problems and you help companies know what's actually happening, what you want to double down on, what you want to cut back on. Okay, interesting. I've heard you say a couple times, uh, you're an economist at heart and I didn't really get that, but now I get why you say that. Um, so thank you for connecting those dots for me. <laughs> yeah. I always gravitated towards math and science because there was a right answer. Um, mm -hmm. and also through Freakonomics, I quickly saw how data on its own is worthless. It's the, it's the insights where the value lies and it's how they connected the dots to come up with the story as to what was happening and why it was happening that for me really just opened my eyes. 
Um, mm -hmm. and, and I came to the realization that data is actually a language. It's not just a thing. Uh, and I learned to speak both languages of data and business fluently and can translate between them. Uh, this is just the way for me to share what I feel is my truth. Uh, and I know you can relate to that with words and photos. And I'd probably say that you speak the languages of business and art, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we talk about that a lot is it's just a tool. Data is your tool. Words are my tool. And mm -hmm. it's really the thinking behind them um, that dictates the impact of them. The tool, not so much mm -hmm. knowing how to use it. But um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about on a tangible level what that's looks like for you. Um, your career path is very interesting um, and what you have managed to do with analytics. So senior year of college, you read Freakonomics. What happens next? Yeah, it's it's funny you ask that. And and I want to kind of go back because in a side, like in hindsight, thinking about my career path, it makes a ton of sense now looking backwards. Um, but to be honest, and I think this is what we do as humans, it's me making meaning of it after the fact. Mm -hmm. It really was an organic evolution. And as far as I'm concerned, everything just kind of felt like the right next step. But it's really in hindsight where the story appears. I don't know if you've kind of felt the same thing for for your own career. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it happens when you go to like write your about page or your LinkedIn bio, right? Where you're like, okay, so I know where I am. I kind of have to explain where I got here. And then, yeah, it makes sense. But at the time, you know, especially me as a creative, me as a creative, you know, how do I explain how I got here? Because it, it was a very messy process. And and I think that's true of most people. And then, yeah, looking back there it did make sense. But at the time, you know, it was, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do what makes the most sense. Right. Yeah. And, and I think even within that, some of the stories that come to mind now and things that feel like important points throughout my career are probably different than the ones that if you had asked me the same question three or four years ago. Right. Cause I think, again, I think oh, like we're constantly, we're constantly making meaning of mm -hmm. kind of like where we are now. And in hindsight, what some of those things are that, that are really those tipping points, it's not necessarily something and, and frankly, it's advice I give to anybody for their own careers is really not to think too much about this needs to be some sort of linear path. I think, you know, we have that kind of like that, that gut feel that leads you in the right direction. It will all make sense in hindsight. And as the end of that trajectory changes, wherever we are today, it kind of changes how you look at the past too. Yeah. So I, I started my career in uh, financial services at Capital One Credit Cards uh, doing customer retention. Um, and the idea was like, what can we do to save our customers from leaving? Um, but the interesting project there that I think about is like we were trying to proactively improve our attrition. And so one of the interesting projects we did was predictive modeling on who is going to be the best future customers and how do we continue mm -hmm. to offer them upgraded products so that they don't leave to have to get that with a competitor. But it was just, you know, again, kind of getting into that predictive modeling. Um, after there, I spent a, a couple of years in the big consulting world. Um, I, I really did learn that I love the idea of project-based work, the idea of specialists coming in to solve a problem and then moving on to solve mm -hmm. another problem. So yeah, and that, then I landed at uh, BMC Software at uh, the beginning of 2010. And so they're a big tech company down in Houston that uh, sells IT service management uh, software and hardware. So it helps essentially when you have any kind of service issues in your own IT stack. Um, Got it. And I was there... I was their first marketing analytics hire uh, and eventually pretty quickly built and led the entire global department of analysts and data scientists. Uh, and the truth is, before I joined, the marketers had close to zero insight into data or performance of campaigns. And so it really felt mm -hmm. like turning on the lights for the first time, um, which then really led into developing more and more complicated attribution models. And, you know, e even back then in the sort of early 2010s, sort of, sort of saw then that we couldn't really track every activity and every individual within every company. And 
it was becoming this bigger and bigger thing. And um, but wait, I, I think wait, yeah, I started. You, yeah, you discovered dark social, Jeff. Well, no, I didn't invent it. I just shaped it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think what came from that was it started to strengthen my creativity, really, on on how do we measure things effectively. Mm -hmm. You know, frankly, seeing how important it was to have the right metrics in place because. Again, back to the economist piece, like that's the right metrics is how you incentivize the right behaviors. Um, right. It, one thing, again, just to note at, at BMC, and this is true of a lot of, you know, enterprise companies is, is that marketing was really seen internally as a cost center. So mm -hmm. very clearly didn't have a, a full seat at the table, um, you know, and so it was a big tech company. And so the like marketing budget went up if the year, if the year was good. But it was the first place to get cut if things weren't great. And yeah. you know, a lot of it's because they couldn't, frankly, marketing itself as a as a department couldn't justify essentially not just the existence, but the budget. And so I started seeing firsthand that kind of the life cycle, the two to three year kind of lifespan of CMOs. And it mm -hmm. felt like every, you know, every couple of years they're kind of just doing a line change with like the entire sort of marketing executive team. But beyond that, like the thing for me that was actually the most exciting that I did there was leading our analytics center of excellence as a company. And so this really was an ad hoc team that we brought together, my team and marketing analytics, along with the sales analytics and finance analytics team. Because the truth is, in our day to day, we really only had access to the data for our function. We had very different you know, kind of data silos. And so my team was only yeah. looking at marketing data. Um, but the, one of the big things we did is how do we prioritize at a company level? How do we prioritize what our sales plays are going to be for the year Our big priorities, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how we're going to go to market. And the truth is we actually asked the head of sales and we said, okay, how do you guys come up with your top 10 things for the year? And essentially he kind of said at the time, well, we're kind of guessing. Right. And yeah, hadn't, they really hadn't been using any data. Um, it was kind of based on anecdotal conversations, gut feel, um, the thing that really kind of like opened my eyes was the power of bringing together data from across the entire customer life cycle. And mm -hmm. it really did, you kind of, kind of could see the story come to life. And in this particular case, we identified like a, an opportunity to cross sell products in a place where it was going to be really complimentary. And it, but because we had data from all across the different silos, what types of companies should you target and how do you build marketing to really support that? Uh, we predicted it at like a $20 million revenue opportunity and it turned out to be 25 million. But, you know, crazy that we could do all of that just by pulling together disparate data and finding like these relationships and the recommendations to drive the business value. Uh, right. Just by going on the same page data wise, um, you know, something based on anecdotal conversations. I do think that type of qualitative data is insanely impactful. Um but it was what you said after that, the gut feel, right? Where it's like, yeah, qualitative data is a good supplement to quantitative. It is not a supplement yeah. to gut feel. Sorry. Correct. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, but, but what you're speaking so to is is the what you're speaking play, to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you know, just talking about like doing the next right thing, right? Sometimes those little snippets mm -hmm. from conversations can lead us to the next right thing. So. Um, I, I just want, we don't, we are very big on those anecdotal conversations. It was, what is it supplementing though? Right. Um, yes. Well, and what you're speaking to, and what I really love is the idea that quantitative and qualitative are both valuable, but uh, frankly together, right. That you should, you know, the yes. qualitative insights that then lead to say, how do we test this quantitatively? And then things totally. that come out of the quantitative that you're like, Oh, w w I don't understand that. And then you go back to the qualitative again, it's, it's the sort of dance back and forth between them. But when all you have 
is that kind of gut feel? Here's what we think we should do. Yeah. And it's based on our priorities and it's not based on your customers. Again, I, I think that's the piece where, where you, you kind of lose that thread. After okay, about cool. six years or so, as we talked about that kind of two to three year dance, it started kind of feeling like yep. Groundhog Day. Like essentially, yep. like I'm now having the same conversations with the third set of new leadership. And you know, at that time, I was sort of ready for a new challenge. Um, and so I, I left BMC at the time for a small healthcare company called FamilyWise to lead their analytics, marketing, and business strategy, and essentially to be the, the right hand of the CEO. So, you know, I hear a lot about data analytics. I do not hear the word research. Where does that come in? And is this with FamilyWise? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was. And, and so before I joined, really, like the company had, you know, kind of grown like crazy and then plateaued, had a couple years of a plateau. And you know, this is pretty common too. The senior leadership, they'd been in the industry for years, right? They were sort of mm -hmm. lifers. And, but as a result, we felt very confident that we knew our market and our customers. Um, but there was a real pressure, especially on the CEO, and, you know, that kind of led to bringing me and some other new leadership in to find that path to growth. Um, so we called our product a, a prescription savings card. And sort of in sort of this like offhand thing, we were doing some user testing for new features. And I kept hearing customers saying prescription discount card, which is close to identical, but mm -hmm. not quite the same. Mm -hmm. um, and so then just out of curiosity, you're like, oh, let's check the search volume. And it actually turns out the prescription discount card at the time was getting seven times the search volume of prescription savings card. And so, you know, this was a, a pretty easy shift where it was just like, okay, let's literally just change the language of what we refer to our product and product category as. Um, and it really was kind of like clockwork. Like within six months, we had increased natural search traffic by 5x. The, the truth wow. is there had been a larger audience looking for the solution we provide, but we, they weren't finding us. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, I think it really signified something about Squared. We've been using this like really inside out thinking and assuming we knew our ideal customers and we were close, but, but the truth is it's really that last mile where 80% of the value lives. And, and I think that's something that really rang true to me. Um, but this really started us down a, a path as a company of, of doing buyer research because it's like, okay, if that was like this little one-off thing that we could find, like what else could we learn if we do this a little more intentionally? Uh, yeah, no, that story reminds me of the phrase, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter that you were close. It's if yeah. a plane takes off a couple of the wrong degrees, you yep. end up in a different city, right? So I think this to me shows just how black and white. If you are not speaking how your customers are speaking, you are wrong, right? They cannot hear yep. you. It, oh, they can't almost hear you. It doesn't matter. So I just, um, yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. And, and I think of it like, uh, I really love the 80-20 principle as well, right? The idea that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it applies to so many different things in life. But in this case, 80% of the value is in the last 20% of really knowing mm -hmm. your customers. And so a lot of companies thinking, eh, we, we got this, right? We're at 80%. We're doing right. just fine. It's like, literally, they're missing out on 80% of the value then, right? If they kind of stop there. Yeah. And it kind of goes too with um, kind of hiring a specialist or even in marketing where mm -hmm. they companies skimp out on that last 20%, whether it's yeah. in any regard and or they think it should cost less because it's just a small piece of the overall project. Exactly. But if you don't get that last piece, you don't equal 100% and you need 100%. Mm -hmm. So that's also what I think of. It's like, yes, 80-20, but you need both, right? So, so, so you know, again, now we're, now we're super curious. And so we did basically the only thing we knew what we could do. We hired market research firms and we're kind of like, yeah, mm -hmm. okay, how, how do we learn all of these things? How do we figure out how much we really don't know? 
Um, and you know, so th there's a couple different projects, but I'm thinking of one in particular where, and, and I was the one leading these projects, hiring the firms. And so the one in particular, like they, they didn't, they didn't understand our business. Right. And, and, right. but as a result, they, when we saw the survey they initially developed, it was like, no, 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 like they weren't, they couldn't speak our language. And so I ended yeah. up having to rewrite their survey for them. Again, it kind of goes back to the fact that like, there were just the nuances they were missing. Right. Like, um, yeah. Had, Field fielded the survey, and then at the end of it, they dumped a 117 page PDF after fielding the survey. Um, it, yeah, and, and I honestly think it's kind of like there's so much data, but there's no analysis, right? It, it's sort right. of just this all of this flat data, and the idea is like, look how much stuff we have. Here's all of it, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing I told them, and I was thinking at the time, it's like I can't walk into my CEO's office and show him a mm -hmm. 117 page presentation. He's like, no, no, no right? So yeah. it's like. So I went back to the research firm and said, okay, can you send me the raw data? And I went through, mm -hmm. did the analysis, extracted wow. the insights and turned it and turned it into a, a, a presentation, right? It was like seven slides or whatever, but like with recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, but, then, but then I was kind of looking back on it. I was like, wait, I did all of the real work for them. Um, and yet I paid a lot of money, a lot of the company's money for the privilege to do that. Um, two things stuck out to me. Uh, first is it's not, to me, the issue wasn't that they didn't know your business. It's that they didn't get to know your business because every yeah. business is different. But mm -hmm. to me in research, the whole point is that they don't know. So that's actually not mm -hmm. a bad thing. Um, and same with marketing. Like it's, it's not the issue that marketers don't know their customers is that there's no willingness or desire to get to know. Um, mm -hmm. and then similarly, I think it's this, uh, mismatch disconnect in expectations right like you could have very and i see this with marketing services too where people think they're getting something than what they're paying for but if they really look back they'd be like oh that is what you said you were going to do i just thought i could do more with it right i just thought there exactly. would be better mm -hmm. results and then um you know my first marketing client uh was a restaurant group and mm -hmm. you know i told him he showed me what his SEO guy was doing. And I said, okay, that's fine. I mean, I knew I could do better. Um, my team could do better, but I didn't pitch it that way. I just said, okay, um, here's what you're paying for. And here's what you're getting. Is that what you wanted? Yeah. Right. And right. he was like, no, you know, mm -hmm. but it's that mismatch that I see. Um, I guess it's in market research too and marketing services. Well, yeah. And, and as we've talked about in your work, the idea that like you need to be able to learn your clients customers language right you need mm -hmm. to be able to speak as a local and you know again in the research it's it's sort of the same thing right they just weren't really yeah. going very far all right so you did all this work um uh -huh. basically your first <laughs> project of what you would then build a company on um and then what happened yeah it, 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 and we did a couple of those and, and again we just became addicted to learning more and deeply understanding our ideal customers and because again mm -hmm. almost every step of the way we saw impact and we saw growth and Right. You know, the truth is, as a starting point, we had a great product and we had a, yeah. a, a market with a challenge that we could solve for. Um, but research really enabled us to position the company to align with the needs of the ideal customers and made our content messaging so much more effective. Um, we used you know, sort of the analytics side. We developed a new pricing strategy. We built these strategic partnerships. And, you know, frankly, all of this together kept compounding and we ended up doubling our revenue and helping help the company get acquired for almost $200 million dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, and that approach and strategy that went into it kind of accidentally, but it was really because exactly, it was exactly what I needed as a marketing leader at, at mm -hmm. the company at the time that 
frankly, was treading water. Um, yeah. And after we sold the company, it was time for me to figure out what was next in my career. I had been doing, you know, more pure analytics consulting on the side for a few years at that point, and it was really just time to go all in. And that's really how Circum Research came to be. Awesome. Um, you know, it's so funny seeing the results from simply getting to know your customers. It sounds so far fetched, right? <laughs> like a nine-figure yeah. acquisition just from getting to know your customers, and it seems too good to be true. So that's awesome. Cool. So here you are with Circuit Research. I'm curious, what was your first project with Circuit Research after you went out on your own? It was with Trustpilot. Uh, we quantified the value of their branding and ultimately their entire value proposition that they sell to their clients. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was your first one. Um, I do want to come back to that project because it's awesome. Uh, but for now, spotlight back on Circuit Research. So you did an episode with Matt Malenga where you used a phrase for the first time to describe your work, which was demand research. So tell us, what is demand research? Yeah, demand research is uncovering the needs of your ideal customers in a way that aligns with your product or solution. And how did you come up with that name? So we dug into our differentiators as a company. It was clear how different we were from the traditional market research approach. We wanted a name that was easily understood in terms of its objective and what it accomplished. But we also weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, we're still a research okay. company. But the type that we do is just different than the majority of what's being done. And what people think of is, quote unquote, B2B research. Perfect. That leads me right to my next question. How does demand research differ from market research? Sure. So the first difference from market research really is around the scope. And so the scope of demand research only extends to the problems that your product solves and the audience is made up of your exact ideal customer. And it's really this narrowed scope between the survey content and the audience that results in the hyper-relevant and actionable insight that drives demand versus market research which is done at the broad category and industry level. And the second way it differs is really the overall approach. So one of our core tenets that we say is to begin with the end in mind. And that means a couple different things, but at a high level, it means clarifying and starting with your end goal for the research, whether that's content creation, snippets for sales enablement, persona-specific messaging, where on the other hand with market research, there's no direct objective tied to driving revenue or even demand. Right. Market trends don't drive demand. Stats don't drive demand. Sorry to burst anyone's bubble with that information. <laughs> exactly. And then more specifically, beginning with the end in mind also means asking the right qualitative questions to get the right quantitative data. As data doesn't matter if there's no actionable insight. And also, this doesn't get talked about enough. In order to drive demand, the data that you're extracting insight from needs to be relevant to your target audience. And that starts with asking the right questions, all of which need to be related to the solution that our clients provide. You know, this guarantees that the insights we extract from the research leads back to our client solution in an organic way that doesn't appear self-servant. Yeah, I see a lot of reports that are just a data dump of stats that don't really have anything to do with what they do specifically. They're in the same hemisphere and in industry, of course. But then they hit you with a paragraph about what they do as a company at the end. And it's like, how did we get here? And, you know, it's because the questions they asked, A, weren't relevant to their audience's pain points. And B, they didn't tie back to their solution. And so when they hit you with a summary of what the company does in the CTA, it's completely ineffective. Oh, right. Yeah. And that insight piece is a great segue into the third way demand research differs from market research, which is that analysis layer. You know, this is essentially our secret sauce from my background. It's that dot connecting and pattern recognition that turns what I refer to as two-dimensional data into three-dimensional insight. And it's really mm -hmm. connecting those data points to bring the story to life give it context, understand the real why behind what's happening and the critical, so what do we do about it? But first, the elephant in the room that no one noticed unless you listened to our uh, last episode on positioning or took the time to read my 30-page piece, um, not hyperbole, by the way, um, nope. is that we are both <laughs> we are both very against category creation for the sake of category creation. Um, 
And yet here we are creating a subcategory. Are we raging hypocrites? Yes. Um, but not because of this for other reasons. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But Jeff, how would you defend what you are doing? Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a great point because like so many things we talk about, I'm not completely against the idea of anything for the sake of the thing, right? Like I'm not completely against 100% the idea of category creation. I'm against companies using a new category as an excuse to not clearly explain to their customers what they do. Um, exactly. And in our case, I think, you know, I think of it as a subcategory, like you said, and there are certain aspects of market research that we want people to know coming in, but we want to be able to highlight what makes us different. Um, and we're using research as really the foothold, as you say in your piece, and creating a new category would be really like unnecessarily removing it and force us to reinvent the wheel simply because we don't like the connotation of research. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also built our positioning based on our own research and feedback from our ideal customers. Right. And so we, you know, we're kind of doing in the meta way, we're doing exactly what we recommend for our clients. And, but it, in reality, we're really only going down this road because it allows us to be more clear with our ideal customers. Totally, totally agree, Jeff, obviously. Um, all right, now let's talk about the three things you claim to do at Circuit Research. Uh, can you say those back again? Sure. The, the first was to be able to create content across the entire customer journey, develop positioning and messaging, and then learn what matters most to their ideal customers. Awesome. Um, and I'm just kidding. I know you actually do these. You don't just claim, but I am very big on always providing either data or examples. Um, otherwise, you know, do not speak to me unless you have receipts. Um, so I want to go through each one of those and then have you give a tangible example of how you've done that. First up, content for the entire customer journey. Can you explain more and tell us how you've done that? Sure. So let me give you an example uh, with a, a client uh, called NewsCred. Uh, they were a content marketing platform and agency that has since sold the company to Industry Dive. Uh, but starting at the top or the beginning uh, of the customer journey, with awareness content. So there are three groups that really love data-rich content from original third-party research. The first and most important is your audience. Now, because the data from there is based on their insight and you've surveyed them as part of the research, the, the content can't help but be hyper-relevant. Um, the other two, Google and the press. So those second two, the content really creates kind of a snowball effect plus flywheel. And so what I mean by that is the press articles create a ton of valuable black backlinks, which further boosts the SEO. And in NewsCred's case, they were able to get coverage from Business Insider in addition to a bunch of other industry publications. And from an SEO perspective, the blog posts, they, they were able to rank on the first page of SEO for some really competitive terms, including number one for top marketing initiatives for more than six months. Um, their domain rating, to be perfectly honest had been essentially nothing. It was really garbage before that. So it was completely mm -hmm. about the content, which helped them rank. Um, but at the end of the day, the truth is the reason Google and the press like it so much is because your audience likes it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, advertisers pay Google's bill, Google and the media's bills, but it's because they have eyeballs. Um, and why do they have eyeballs? Because they give people what they want to read. And, you know, everyone thinks SEO has gotten harder and it's like, no, you just need to give people things they actually want to read versus keyword stuffing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that takes work. So SEO isn't harder. You're just lazy. <laughs> totally. I love the way you put that. <laughs> um, so the next stage of the customer journey is consideration. And so for consideration content, the research can be easily repurposed into really demand content that connects the challenges of your buyers to what your product actually does and how you solve those challenges. And 
news cred did this really effectively through webinars for them. You know, the initial blog posts from our research were much more focused around what was happening and why it matters to the audience. But in the webinars, the focus shifts a little downstream and you can lead with those challenges, talk about the data, but then you can spend the majority of the time showing their ICP how they can actually effectively solve those problems. Um, and because, again, the research audience was their ideal customers, the content's hyper-relevant. And so, and then Newsprint mm -hmm. used that blog-webinar combination really as the foundation of their demand strategy. Um, and the final piece here is sales enablement. But having stats, direct quotes from your ICP is really a huge part of what NewsCred was able to do. Help them create one-pagers, email sequences that close deals. Um, but they use that research as the foundation of their content and demand strategies, which led to that growth and the nine-figure acquisition by Industry Dive. Uh, just as a quick aside, you know, one of my favorite things about writing your case studies was witnessing the success and not just success, I would argue wild success uh, with allegedly dead marketing channels. Um, one of my big things has always been, you know, there are no bad marketing tactics or channels, just abused ones. Um, and so to see you then prove that with your work was incredibly satisfying. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I kind of think of that too when a little bit when I talk about NewsCred and Welcome and how they were doing blogs and webinars that really was, you know, kind of like mm -hmm. became their foundation. And, you know, but the, the truth is like everyone loves to blame the channel or the tactic, but what they don't do is they really just don't look at the fact that their content or what they put in there is just not good. And the, the truth is, you know, it's both quality and relevance, right? And, and ultimately a lot of that is because they don't know their audience, but instead of saying, hey, our content's probably not good enough, they're saying, oh, it's the wrong channel. Right. Um, yeah. And then there's also this element of a lot of the people like bashing not a lot but their people are bashing these tactics and channels that actually do that for their job um you know legion's bad unless you pay us to do it right <laughs> and it's just so so ironic and hilarious to me we, we do it the right way <laughs> yeah we but we're not actually going to admit that that's what we do we're going to call that's it the right. engine that's right um, yeah. So when I was in college, actually freshman year of college, um, a couple of my friends and I were out one night doing what 18 year old uh, kids do. And we mm -hmm. we came back, we had too much to drink for sure. And so on our side of of the hall, there were there was a bathroom that had two stalls in there. And so uh, myself and one of my best friends were at a point that we were both, you know, let's say vomiting in the toilets. And a third guy, one of our friends who we were out with came in mm -hmm. and he, he sees me and I'm kind of like half lay on the floor. And he's like, no, no, Sirkin, Sirkin, don't, don't, don't lay on the floor. It's bad for you. It's bad for you. And here I am, this 18-year-old kid, and I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, he's probably right. So I like get myself up and like, you know, like kind of walk out and go to the sink. And as soon as I do, he just jumps in and starts throwing up in the toilet. I was like, oh, all he wanted was me to get out of there. So yeah. He could do the same exact thing I was doing. <laughs> yes. That is ex like the perfect analogy to describe <laughs> what exactly is going on. <laughs> Such a good story. Um, okay, second value add, positioning and targeted messaging. So those are actually two different things. So let's talk mm -hmm. about positioning. Yeah, so I, I think our work with Welcome Software is probably the best example there. Uh, and all of the work that I just talked about with NewsCred, um, they were developing a SaaS product in the background, which is what came to be called Welcome Software, which was you know then ultimately bought by Optimizely. Um, their ICP for the SaaS product was the same as who they were serving with the agency. So they knew their audience pretty well. Um, but instead of leaning on the assumptions within their organization, they wanted to ground their core positioning for the new product in research. Um, we also, you know, created a category for them called marketing orchestration. And we talked about this in our last podcast around positioning, 
But the truth is, it was backed by insight from their ideal customers. So, you know, ultimately their ideal customers decided on the category, not them. Um, But as part of this, we developed a quantitative survey to test that messaging. And we also, in addition, did qualitative interviews to help welcome actually test out their sales deck with sort of in in a a live scenario with potential buyers. And so the truth is, Welcome Software crushed their launch. Uh, Their positioning resonated and followed the same blog and webinar playbook we were talking about that they'd done with NewsCred um, to drive demand. And they crushed it so hard. In fact, again, as I mentioned, that they were acquired by Optimizely for nine figures in less than 24 months after the launch. Okay. Targeted messaging, the second half of value add number two. Tell us Mm -hmm. an example from that. Yeah. My favorite example there comes from Ed Verity. Uh, They sell marketing analytics software. And, you know, what... um, Another core aspect of you know, what I refer to as begin with the end in mind is being intentional about who the audience is for the research. And so in our strategy meetings with clients at the beginning of projects, we talk with our clients about all the different personas and the roles of the individuals who get involved in the buying decision, you know, who they're trying to sell to ultimately. And when it's relevant, we ensure that we source enough of a sample from each of the key personas as part of the research. And so here's why. And in the, in the case of Ed Verity, it's the functional marketers who tend to be the ultimate buyers of the product, but the end user is a more technical data analyst. Mm-hmm. And so in our survey, we found that the marketers and analysts, what they care about in relation to marketing analytics was very different from each other. Analysts cared more about the ability to integrate with all the data sources and the technical capabilities that would ultimately save them time. And the marketers cared more about whether or not they were going to get a so what from the data and the ability mm-hmm. to highlight like the next recommended action for them to take, things like that. Um, before our research, before the project, it Verity had been in market with one consistent set of me- messaging that frankly wasn't resonating with either marketers mm-hmm. or analysts. It really like what I would say kind of fell in the cracks between them. Um, mm-hmm. and what our analysis uncovered was really the need to develop targeted messaging for each persona individually, but along with the insight serving as the raw materials to build it. Um, and so this is where, and, and one other quick piece there is we also did show them where there was an overlap between what they cared about. It wasn't a hundred percent different, mm. but like there, but, and that overlap is important because this enables them to use that messaging on like on the homepage of their website and in places like where you do mm-hmm. need to speak to both of those groups together. You know, what are the umbrella things that everybody cares about, but there was enough of a differential that you did need to develop targeted messaging for each persona. Right. If you're speaking to everyone, you're speaking to no one, unless you confirm by research mm-hmm. what that overlap is. Yeah. Um, yes. So they knew, Verity knew there was a difference between analysts and marketists. Mark, sorry. <laughs> so Verity knew there was a difference between <laughs> analysts and marketers. They just needed more data to craft specific messaging that resonated. Is that correct? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, I would say ultimately it was a hypothesis, right? Which, which was, it turned out to be correct, but we didn't know, mm-hmm. but we thought that might be there. And so there was a couple of things is first, we obviously needed to confirm whether or not that was true, but we also did need to know mm-hmm. the specifics, right? So yes, we needed to know the actual challenges and priorities each group had and can't just say, okay, they're different, right? But they need to know actually yeah. what it was. Um, and, but what was interesting, and this is really important to know with demand research, to be honest, is like, it's just as important what you don't find as what you do. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we craft those hypotheses because our research leans on the scientific method but it's with the intention of driving demand instead of just random stats to throw in a report to establish authority. Um, and mm-hmm. But the truth is, sometimes those hy- hypotheses are proven wrong, and that's not a bad thing either. Yeah, I think 
I feel like B2B marketers are so scared of being proven wrong and looking bad that they just don't want to do research, right? And mm-hmm. um, But what they don't realize is that, A, they already look really bad. I mean, they just spent 20 years plus lighting budget on fire. So for any like B2B marketers who are like, oh, like people don't take us seriously. It's like, correct. Yes, you're to confirm that. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, they're grasping at straws because A, their work is based on assumption and B, they can't, they don't know how and they can't build solid business cases for their work because back to A, their work is based on assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it doesn't drive results because it's built on assumption and because there's no results, can't really build a business case around it. Um, so it's just this vicious cycle. But the reality is when you're proven wrong, it means you're proving something, right? Which means you yeah. then have something to work with and a solid base from which to drive results and to pivot to that has been backed by data. And so it's that humility that actually leads the willingness to look bad and quote unquote bad and to be wrong actually leads to marketers looking really good if they're just willing to be humble enough to do research, right? Um, you know, admitting how much you don't know and being willing to correct that and put in the work to find out is how you achieve success, both as an individual marketer and, you know, at the team level as well. I love the way you put that. And, you know, in, in this case, you know, the client, there was a couple of hypotheses, right? So they had hypotheses that what mattered would be different by country, let's say, right? So like, as a result, and they're based in in Europe, but so we conducted the survey across the US, the UK and Germany, right? Intentionally to say, like, were there regional differences? In addition, they also thought there might be things by industry that showed up. So we made sure to source responses mm-hmm. from their key industries that they serve. And it turned out those two were wrong, right? And so the only differences we saw that were really noticeable and were statistically significant were at the persona level, not by geography or industry. Mm-hmm. And the reason this matters is because they didn't, now they don't have to go create country or industry specific right. messaging. And and I really wanted to bring this up because like when it comes to analysis, the stories that get told are about the insights that lead to new strategies, but not enough gets mm-hmm. made of the ones that allow companies to prevent spending more time and effort on things that aren't necessary. Okay. I want to bring up another thing about this client because um, mm-hmm. I think it's a really good example of the certain research secret sauce in action for another reason. Um by the way, I mean, I wrote these case studies. I know <laughs> I'm over here acting <laughs> like I don't know the answers to what I'm asking, Jeff. Although, to be fair, I don't know some of them. I have learned some things in this interview. Um, but with this client, through your analysis, you discovered what we now call an unexpected insight. Um, and this led them to being able to strengthen or really create uh, a new value proposition, um, which was not an objective of the research, which is why we call it an unexpected insight. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So within the survey, we asked two different questions. Um, the first one is around kind of the current state. And then the second one is a future state. And ultimately, it was around different capabilities that we would define as how analytical maturity, showing you know, really how far advanced they were as an organization. And what we found on the future state of basically what does everybody want, right? In the next 12 months, what are your plans? What are your aspirations? Everybody wants the yeah. same future. They all want AI, machine learning, predictive analytics. Great. Right. But because we asked both questions, we're able to then go back and say, well, wait a second, who had already achieved those things? Because, you know, whose current state already includes those things and what separates them from the pack? Um, And the truth is, we found that those companies that were already using AI, machine learning, predictive analytics, they were substantially more likely to be experts on the basics, which is data management, Mm -hmm. campaign reporting. And that just so happens that that's what Adverity's tool does is allow companies to master those basics. And, and the reason it was critical is because it now allowed Adverity to lean on that value proposition of being a building block 
that helps those companies get to the aspirational future that they want. Super interesting. So I was just about to ask you about, uh, you know, what you do in Excel, essentially the second bookend analysis piece. But as you're saying that, it really is more demonstrative of, or I guess not more so, but just how much the first bookend, asking the right qualitative questions to get the right quantitative data impacts what you are able to do in Excel. Um, the analysis piece afterwards, I mean, another way to say it, you could not just take anyone's data and make the connections you do, right? It really starts even before, uh, starts with crafting the right survey. Yeah. Yeah. And again, to me, this actually exactly comes back to begin with the end in mind, right? If you don't actually structure the survey in the right way, there's sort of no amount of analysis that's going to bring some of this to light. Um, and again, and, and that's why to me, it's so important to begin with the end in mind, because it, it really is, there just is no way around it. And, and so in this particular case, we did have a nice natural experiment based on the number of people that surprisingly were already in the camp of being, you know, using AI and machine learning today. Um, but you're 100% right. If we didn't set up the the survey, if we didn't ask the questions in the right way, there's just nothing we could have done to sort of make these connections after the fact. I had a line in my positioning, my last positioning piece. Um, you know, I say there's no amount of positioning POV or copy can sell a bad product that customers don't want, especially in the B2B space, like completely everyone gives these ridiculous examples of B2C companies, right? Um, but it does not apply as a business owner. If it is not a fit, I will not buy your product. And um, the line was, I'm a consultant, not an alchemist. And I, you know, I just thought you're an analyst, not an alchemist, right? So you really have to be working with the right materials to get a workable end product. Yeah, I love that. And actually, it's, it's funny, as, as we were talking, I was thinking about that line from your piece as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. Awesome. All right. The third value add, finding out what matters most to your ideal customer. Um, tell us more and give us an example. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things at, at play here. The first one is we talked a little earlier about the 80-20 rule. And so you know, getting what actually matters most, the number one need, the number one pain point, the number one priority to a customer is just that much more, you know, maybe three or four times more important than the thing that's number two or number three, right? That, that's just like the 80-20 rule. And, and the other thing is, and, and we've developed this over time, is that there's a big difference between what I would call table stakes and a legitimate need. Mm -hmm. And so again, this comes out in, in a lot of our surveys, we ask about as an example about product features and how important this particular product feature is. And so we have mm -hmm. a range where it's like, oh, yes, this is important. It's like, but it's table stakes. And you know, sort of like we've had clients find out that they were the things they were marketing as this cutting edge technology really just wasn't that it wasn't that special. Right. It was completely expected. You know, the idea that like, yeah. I assume you integrate with my CRM. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be considering your solution in the first place. Yeah. What you call just as an aside, what you call table stakes uh, in messaging, I call it saviorism um, and B2B SaaS copy is and messaging is rife with uh, this celebrating of things that should come standard. Right. Yeah, I, I like, you know, you and I have had this conversation, but I really like the idea that it's like people who laugh at their own jokes too hard because it, it's almost like you've now oversold your joke to me. And I'm mm -hmm. kind of like, wait, you know, like, and again, it's just that kind of thing of like, yes, I assumed a sandwich was two pieces of bread and you're, <laughs> you know, trying to sell me on the fact that you're giving me two pieces of bread. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. It sucks the air out of the room. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, a couple examples just like from our clients. So again, back to AdVerity, one of the things we found by asking about the product features that were most important to their ideal customers 
is they had been talking a lot about their out-of-the-box dashboards, right? Like all of their capabilities. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is we talked earlier about how analysts and marketers couldn't agree on anything. Well, one thing they agreed on was mm -hmm. that out-of-the-box dashboards, nobody cared about, right? It was last. And so again, I yeah. mean, you know, this will now help their product development and their messaging, right? So back to like, let's not, you know, kind of like overplay this thing. Yes, I assume you're a business intelligence tool. You're going to have out-of-the-box dashboards again. Um, and another one, uh, a, a client that we worked with this past year, they're, the three main messages they were leading with in market, you know, frankly, what we found was out of the 13 things we tested in the survey, those three things showed up 10th, 12th, and 13th, literally that close to the bottom. And, mm -hmm. you know, back to your, you know, your idea about and what you said about the humility that marketers need to have to even do research in the first place. You know, this was, you know, I don't want to say a bad outcome per se, right? This is a huge learning. And and to be honest, like right. I get excited about this because it really just shows the potential. Like, imagine if you started leading with things that are much higher on the list. All right. Awesome. Crushed it. No further questions, Your Honor. Okay. I am going to shift out of lawyer giving a deposition mode and into stage mom mode. Uh, Jeff did a very cool project with Trustpilot a few years ago. Uh, they may be well known now, but they weren't always. They were really struggling to prove their value proposition. Um, and why this was difficult was because Trustpilot sells trust. And how do you quantify that? Um, but Jeff figured out a way. Um, so I would say this project goes under value at three, proving what matters most to their ideal customers. It's kind of a, not a rogue project per se, but that third value add, I feel like encompasses a lot of possibilities. Um, so Jeff, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Victoria. So uh, Trustpilot came to me, as you said, really struggling to prove the value they provide to their clients. Uh, as a review site, they run a freemium model, essentially. So any company can claim their listing on Trustpilot for free. Mm -hmm. But how they make money is upselling those free customers into the paid tiers. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Trustpilot really does sell trust at the end of the day, because those paying clients are able to then use the Trustpilot logo and brand mark in their own marketing. And so as a result, what we decided was, well, then let's create fake ads for fake companies. Um, and ultimately looking at with and without and, and saying how much more trustworthy are those ads when they have the Trustpilot logo, when they have the Trustpilot brand mark. And we did a bunch of different combinations and also across the globe. I mean, you know, for, for those of you listening in the US, Trustpilot is even bigger uh, in Europe and specifically in the UK mm. uh, than they are here in the US. They're actually based uh, over in Europe. Um, but at the end of the day, this really helped them quantify that trust that they sell to clients and ultimately justify that value proposition. Yeah. What stuck out to me was just how granular you got with the quantification. I mean, you could literally show how much more valuable five stars was than four stars. Mm -hmm. Was it five stars plus the brand mark? Is that more powerful than just the five stars? Right. Um, and then, you know, proving the value proposition seems and is, uh, seems like and is a very fundamental fundamental aspect of developing positioning. Um, you know, my definition of positioning is answering the question, why do customers hand us money? Um, but proving and quantifying it backdoors then into sales enablement too. Um, like messaging from this insight would go on the website for awareness. And then, you know, they did a blog post that got picked up by Adweek. Um, but then sales can then use this data on calls for enterprise deals. Um, you know, back to, I know I said this fell under value at three, but just back to value at one content for the entire customer journey. It's been crazy to see what can come from data, like how many birds you can kill with one stone. Yeah. And, and in their case, as, as you mentioned, they really did have two sort of distinctly different go-to-market motions where sales, as you mentioned, was really doing sort of more of a traditional B2B sale with larger mm -hmm. enterprise accounts. 
But then marketing was really sort of more of like a SMB and mid-market sales at scale though. And so creating those email sequences. And so again, the fact that that data, ultimately the marketing team was also part of sales enablement there too, because that, that data right. being able to strengthen what value that people are going to, to get into it. And, and I know we talked about product a little bit as well, but because they have different tiers, it's not just sort of free paid, they have different paid tiers. And so to your point about getting into four stars versus five stars, the brand markets, the logo, mm-hmm. being able to get really granular about what is the most valuable and how can they put those into tiers so that at the end of the day, they can provide the most value to clients and also make money for, by doing it in the same time. Right. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for entertaining me with that story. Um, all right. Back into uh, lawyer deposition mode with some hot seat questions. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Um, first line, most overrated marketing activity in your opinion? Yeah, it's a great question. And so this is going to be specific to B2B and okay. my answer, uh, is paid search. And so here's why, um, we talked a little bit earlier about really how smart, uh, Google is, and ultimately it's right. really the, the fundamental marketplace. And so what happens in all of these competitive markets, and I'm, especially I'm thinking SaaS, especially here where you have all these competitive spaces. And so what eventually happens is people will pay for ads really up to the point that there is no value and you'll actually go over that. And so then what happens is I've worked in analytics for, for 15 years. I've yet to meet a, a company that sells to mid-market or higher um, in the SaaS space and actually makes an ROI on their paid search. It's something that people mm-hmm. feel they have to do because their competitors are doing. But I think it's one of those things where at the end of the day, if they actually look at it and say, well, if we're ROI negative on this, why are we doing it? Right. Interesting. Okay. Next up, most underrated marketing activity. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you can probably guess where this is going, but I would say <laughs> research. <laughs> um, How self-serving of you, Jess. <laughs> completely. Completely. But you know, the, the truth, I, I, I fully believe that. And, and part of this, as I mentioned, goes back to this is what I needed when I was a marketing leader. This is what actually yes, drove sure. value and, and growth for me. But understanding what matters most to your ideal customers and mm-hmm. being able to then leverage that across the entire funnel, across all these different personas, you know, to me, and it goes back to me, I just think so much about the idea. And we already touched on this, so I don't want to get too much back into it. But the idea of people blaming the channels and tactics mm-hmm. as opposed to just recognizing that maybe their content isn't that good. And and yeah. that's the piece, right? And and so again, it's like, I didn't, it, until you, frankly, until you brought it up, I didn't really think of it as, hey, we're doing work in these quote unquote dead channels and and getting real results. And it's just like, no, the content's good, right? And it's like, right. if the content's good, the channel matters so much less. Of course, you still do have to, you know, it, it's not yeah, to say it, it's zero no. and you can do the same thing. Right, yeah. right. But but it's really just that idea of when you actually know your customers so well, the content is really good and it just makes everything so much easier. It's the rising tide that lifts all boats. Number three, uh, what is the most important skill you can possess as a marketer? Yeah, so I think it's two that are kind of connected. And and again, mm-hmm. we, we sort of talked about this. I think the first one that I think of all the time is curiosity. Um, it's that sort of that innate thing where you see something and you say, oh, that's super interesting. Here's the three other questions that now brings up that I want to answer. Yeah. And and I think the piece that's really necessary for the curiosity to exist is the humility. And Mm -hmm. it's that idea. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, that idea of not being afraid to be proven wrong, um, because the truth is it's that we're learning something. Uh, And and I think Mm -hmm. that's the piece that there's just this block right now 
um, that exists. And and you and I talk about this in terms of like research is like vegetables to some extent. And it's, yeah. but it, it, it's that it, it's knowing how important it is and seeing how much more valuable it is to get that extra mile and to actually know the answers as opposed to just thinking you do. And so many companies just fall into that same trap of feeling they know mm-hmm. enough. Um, and it's just, as we see time and time again, it's just not true. So having the humility to say, we want to learn whether that proves us right or wrong, doesn't matter. It means we're learning. Um, and then being able to be curious to then take that next step. So once you learn something to say, oh, that's super interesting. Now what? Right. Like every answer should come with three more questions that are open and then going to find those answers. And it, again, it becomes this flywheel when you get into that. And, and to me, that's, yeah. and, and you've even said this is treating marketing and, and you've said this in, in terms of the way you do positioning for clients is you really treat your own work like an investigator. And, and I really love that kind of connotation, but that comes to me with curiosity and humility, right? When you approach it from a place of, I want to learn, it's sort of irrelevant as to what I thought in advance. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Uh, every For every answer, there should be three more questions. That's so good. I've never heard you say that. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned before this idea of companies thinking they know enough about their customers. And I agree, kind of. Um, I personally think it's a front. I think they know how much they don't know, but are scared to find out how wrong they are and to admit that they don't know their customers. So they overcompensate with bravado and confidence. But at the same time, there's also this weird addiction to data. They always want more and more data. And it's like, how much more data do you need? You can literally find out anything you want about your target audience down to what they had for breakfast. And it's still not enough. You know, companies are drowning in data and they're still struggling to drive revenue from their marketing. They're still struggling to differentiate. They're still struggling to create compelling, relevant content. So to me, it's this bizarre dichotomy of thinking they know their customers, but also thinking they need more data about their customers, when in reality, they need to just make sense of the data they already do have before worrying about getting more. Yeah, that's a fair point. There's a stat out there that says companies only look at 15% of their data. I was doing a project a couple of years ago, and a colleague said to me, you you should go out there and say that you help clients look at 100% of their data. I was like, no, that's not the point. It's about Mm -hmm. knowing which 15% to look at. All right, I'm going to mix it up here. So those first three questions were ones that Jeff always asks uh, his interviewees on his podcast. So I had to flip the tables, but I just want to add one more. So a little backstory, Jeff and I bonded very quickly over a couple of things. First, we're both foodies and have similar anxiety levels around choosing restaurants, aka unreasonably high anxiety levels around choosing restaurants. Um, You know, we have similar viewpoints on how marketing should be done and businesses should be run. But we also have a shared affinity for late 90s early 2000s rap and cinema. Um, So my question is, you are able to have dinner with three of your favorite rap artists from the late 90s, early 2000s. DMX is there. Ludacris is there. Luda. Luda. Who's the third? (laughs) Wow. Um, First of all, thank you for including those two. Those are absolutely the first two on the guest list, and DMX would be there twice if I was allowed. Uh, (laughs) It, it, it's really hard because when, when I think about that time period, the first things that kind of come to my mind and really stick are a lot of like actually the, the one hit wonder. So these are ones I wouldn't include, but mm-hmm. like Cameron, Ghost Town DJs, Juvenile, uh, like there's yeah. a couple of these like where there are individual songs that really stick with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I if I have to think about somebody that I would want there sort of for, for a little more of the totality, um, it's actually somebody that you introduced me to, which is Andre Nicotina. Amazing. Great answer. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Andre Nicotina, he is a Bay Area rapper, I would argue the greatest rapper alive, um, a true artist. Uh, if you listen to other more well-known artists, um, 
you might hear his influence in their work. Or, I mean, after you listen to his work. Um, great answer. Warms my heart. I love how you put that. It really was the late 90s, early 2000s was such a cultural wasteland defined by its excess. And yet it was so good. Um, you're a little old. You were in college, right? I was like in middle school. But it's like, yeah, these it's we you'll still sing a song lyric. And I like know this. Anyways, it's just oh, yeah. funny how we both the camera and the juveniles but um i, I think of it as like yeah fun fun trash it was kind of you know like so fun the funnest trash ever for for me it, you know this was the time when i was in college and so the other one that i thought about but i i had to rule out just again it just felt a little too one note to me what was nelly but he was just such a part of so many of like when i think of you know parties in college things like that it's just like i can like kind of picture myself being at different places where different nelly songs are playing yeah, Nelly, definitely a contender. Definitely a contender. I wanted more from him. Um, I know he gave us country grammar. I know he gave us um, Hot and Her and the Air Force One's Tip Drill. And then we got that Tim McGraw collaboration. But I just wanted more from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt like it's sort of the equivalent to me. And, and I know we've talked about this, of the idea of like Ja Rule to DMX, where like Ja Rule always felt to me like a poppy more approachable you know for the masses version of dmx and nelly was just almost like too much of that too much for the masses i think and and as a result like it's just almost like to me a lot of the songs sounded very similar and almost like too mainstream to a point oh really i thought he had a really unique sound that i like i said i wanted more um yeah. i love then there wasn't yeah he had the hits and then he went away and then he popped up with tim mcgraw but it, yeah i wanted more so um no, awesome choice. Thank you for thank you for including him. <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Thank you for entertaining me with that last one. Well, you know, I think this is a good place to end it on a topic that has absolutely nothing to do with B2B marketing. Um <laughs> <laughs> there, there's nowhere there's nowhere to left go to go from here. <laughs> Where else would this have gone? Um no, Jeff, thank you so much. Um, how did it feel? First time guest on your own podcast. Well, th there was there was a different level of nerves, and, and to be honest, I don't know if I was expecting that, but um, Victoria, thanks. Thanks for, you know, be doing this and, and sort of taking, you know, what had been, you know, my job for so long. Um, but again, as we sort of started with at the top, um, Victoria and I together will be back with plenty more episodes going forward. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And, and we'll see you next time.